Good morning. So good to see all of you today. My name is Ricky. I'm honored to be the lead pastor here at Fort Caroline Baptist Church. And if you're a guest today, welcome. We are so glad that you are spending a part of your weekend with us. Let us know that you're here if you feel comfortable doing that by going to fcbc.life and just click on that Let's Connect card and tell us that you were here or the card in the seat pocket in front of you. At the end of this service, I'll make my way to the back where it says, what is your next step? And I would love to put a name with a face. So if you're a guest today, stop by and let me know that you're here. And if we can help you with any questions that any of you might have or taking your next step and your journey here, let us know that as well. And thank you for letting me be out last week. And uh, Pastor John did a great job, and the praise team always do a great job with Craig's leadership. It's good to go to England. It's good to come back. And uh, I was on a train coming back from London, uh, and a gentleman sat across from me. His name is Mike, and um, Mike had probably had just a little too much to drink, and so he sat down in front of me and uh, started telling me about his day and what he does for a living, and he says, so what do you do for a living? And I told him, <laughs> and it's like, it's like the blood just drained from his face, and he says, well, I don't believe in God. I want you to know this train ride is not the place for us to talk about that, and I said, no problem. But, you know, we had just the best conversation for the next hour, invited him to church there where I was attending last Sunday. He didn't come, but, uh, but we're praying for Mike today. And as soon as I started talking, he says, let me guess, you're from America, I would think the southern United States. <laughs> I said, how did you guess? You know? <laughs> so it was good to be away. Jeff Shattuck sends his love and his prayers and his appreciation for your friendship with him. He's really doing well, relaunching his ministry there uh, and uh, in a great church. And today what I want to do is just kind of do a two-week message series to get us ready for Resurrection Sunday. And so we're calling this two-part message series, Resurrection, Fact or Fiction. And today I want to talk to you about the Christian conspiracy. You know, Americans love conspiracy theories. Seems like um, people find a conspiracy behind every rock or tree. A conspiracy has been defined as a secret plan made by two or more people to do something bad, illegal, or against someone's wishes. Some of the famous conspiracy theories involve the 1969 Apollo moon landing or uh, how many gunmen were there at the John F. Kennedy assassination, or um, the UFO landings at Roswell, New Mexico. So all kinds of conspiracy theories. Just last week I read about what one person called the ultimate conspiracy theory, the flat earth conspiracy theory. That There are people who say that this uh, idea that the earth is round is a conspiracy, uh, and they're hiding the truth from us that we actually live on a flat earth. And as I read that, I thought, really? So that's the ultimate conspiracy. And it would take a lot to pull off that conspiracy. But you know, I think there's another conspiracy theory that if it's real, could be the greatest conspiracy theory of ever, of all time. In fact, what I want to do is I want to read it, and then I'll tell you what I believe about this conspiracy theory. It's, it's found in your Bible. It's found in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. The apostle Peter is in the city of Jerusalem. This is just a few weeks after the death of Jesus and his burial. And Peter is out in the streets of Jerusalem along with about 120 other followers of Jesus. They're literally at ground zero where Jesus has been condemned and crucified, where Jesus has been rejected by the majority of the people in the city. 
And there are thousands of people from all over the Roman Empire in Jerusalem at this time. And so Peter has a crowd, and he gets the crowd's attention, and he preaches a sermon to them. He preaches a message to them. And in part, this is what he preached. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now listen to this. Peter proclaims, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it's not possible for him to be held by it. He's, he's declaring that this Jesus, whom everyone knew had been crucified and buried, God literally raised up from the dead. And in case they didn't get the point, he says later in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He says, not only did God raise Jesus physically from the dead, but all of us here have seen Jesus alive from the dead. And can I say to you, if what Peter is saying is a lie, then it is the greatest conspiracy ever foisted upon mankind. If what Peter preached was not true, then on this very day, over 2 billion people all over planet Earth are believing a lie, are the victims of a conspiracy. You see, the Christian conspiracy, as believed by some people in our culture today, is that Christians fabricated the story of the resurrection of Jesus. That it was not true, it did not happen, it is actually a lie that people concocted and they have deceived billions of people throughout history. That would be the greatest conspiracy theory ever if it were true. And listen, maybe this morning you are not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're not sure if he was anything more than a mere man. Maybe you're not sure if you believe that the Bible is God's word and you're not sure about church. I want to just go ahead and, and ask you, just relax. This is a safe place to have those questions. This is a safe place to have those doubts. This church is a safe place to say, I'm not sure I believe that. You're going to have to help me understand why you believe it. You see, here at this church, we believe that all of us at times have our questions. In fact, if you question whether Jesus rose from the dead, you're in great company. I mean, come on, let's just face it. That doesn't happen every day. And if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, you're not the first. And can I tell you who the first people were who did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Jesus' own followers. Don't you remember on that first Easter morning, none of them were waiting at the tomb, counting down 10, 9, 8. He said he would rise. He's going to do it. No. In fact, the men are hiding. The women go to finish the job of anointing the body of Jesus for burial. They thought he was dead, done, over. That's it. We're going to have to figure out what do we do now because our leader is dead and he's not coming back. So listen, if you've got questions and doubts, it's natural 
If people rise from the dead, that, that's a miracle. And you're going to have to have some evidence for that miracle before you just blindly believe it. But before you believe all the conspiracy theories that the early Christians made this story up, I want to ask you just to follow with me today and think about that. And it's my desire that at the end of this message, you will be able to say, I understand better now that this idea that these people lied about this is not reasonable and it's not based on historical evidence. And a lot of conspiracy theories, they don't stand up in the face of evidence and reason. But maybe as well, if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you've had some questions and you've had some doubts about this and you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but you're not sure why you believe other than you believe. And maybe today you'll get a little more evidence and a little more foundation for your faith. But also it's my hope that you'll be better able to defend your faith in the resurrection of Jesus as a result of today. And I said that you're not the first people to question if you question the resurrection of Jesus. His own disciples did in the first century. But there are people today who still question it. Any of you ever watched that television show, Dateline NBC? Anybody here ever seen that besides me? Okay, two or three of you. Thank you for both of you. I appreciate your honesty. You know, Dateline NBC is where they take these, these criminal cases and they do investigation and that kind of stuff just intrigues me. And there's one homicide detective who has been featured on Dateline NBC more than any other homicide detective. In fact, he has, he has cracked more cold cases than any other detective. His name is J. Warner Wallace. And J. Warner Wallace has been featured on Dateline NBC more than any other detective in discussing the cold cases that he has helped crack. As a matter of fact, for most of his growing up years in his adult life, he was an avowed atheist. He did not believe that God exists. He did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He certainly did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. This is what he said in his book that he wrote called Cold Case Christianity. He took his skills as a detective and he applied them to the evidence for the Christian faith, hoping to debunk Christianity. And th this is what he said. I'll read it to you from the screen. He said, when I was an atheist... I recognized that the most significant claim of the alleged apostolic eyewitnesses was their claim related to the resurrection. This was the big one, larger than any other alleged miracle ever performed by Jesus and the proof that the apostles seemed to trot out every time they talked about Jesus. I always assumed it was a lie. Maybe it was just my skeptical nature or my prior experience with people on the job. I understand the capacity people have to lie when it serves their purpose. In my view, the apostles were no different. In an effort to promote their cause and strengthen their own position within their religious community, I believe these 12 men concocted, executed, and maintained the most elaborate and influential conspiracy of all time. He says, but as I learn more about the nature of conspiracies... And had the opportunity to investigate and break several conspiracy cases, I started to doubt the reasonable nature of the alleged Christian conspiracy. And so, what he did is he took what he did in his own personal life and he wrote it out here in this book called Cold Case Christianity. And as I read his book and listened to his lectures, J. Warner Wallace says the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Stands up to anyone who wants to say it's all a conspiracy. 
One of the reasons, he says, now there are many, and I don't have time to read this book to you, but there are are many reasons. But one of the reasons, he says, is that in every good conspiracy, there has to be a compelling motive for telling this lie, for wanting to leverage that lie for some purpose in life. And so he started looking at the motives of the apostles. The word apostle in the Bible means a sent one. So the apostles of Jesus are those men that he selected and then he sent them out into the world to tell the world about who he is. The Son of God died, buried, resurrected. So he said, when I started looking at the motivation of these apostles, I realized there's no conspiracy here. Rather than this being a conspiracy, it was more like a confession of people who actually saw something. With that said, I want to make some observations that I think will help you. First of all, Werner Wallace says, all lies are driven by one of three possible motives. All lies that undergird a conspiracy are motivated by one of three lies or a combination of those three. These won't shock you. You'll recognize them immediately for their motivating factor. He says, people lie for one of three reasons or a combination. Either sex, money, or power. That's it. In fact, if you stop and think about it for a moment, you're going to be hard-pressed to find another motivating reason why people lie. It's either going to be about sex, money, or power. And he says, so he took that criteria of every cold case he's ever solved, every homicide he's ever investigated, and he says, when I walk into a room and I see a body, I don't think to myself... Well, there could be a million reasons why this person is dead. He says, no, I know there's one of three reasons or a combination. It's either sex, money, or power why this person is dead and why someone is trying to cover it up. And so the second point is the apostles lacked any of these three motives. J. Warner Wallace said, as I started investigating the historical evidence for the lives and the activities and the characters of the apostles... I could find none of these motivating factors. For example, were the apostles motivated by sex? I mean, was this all just to get chicks? Is that what this is about? Hey, let's come up with a lie. We'll get some chicks. It's a great story to tell at a bar. Is that what they were doing? There is absolutely no evidence from history, ancient or modern, that backs up the claim that these men were motivated by some lustful desire. None. In fact, the overwhelming testimony and the consistent testimony about the apostles of Jesus were that they were men of honor, they were men of character, they were men of integrity. And so that fails the test. Were the apostles motivated by money? Were they just motivated to get rich? I know, let's tell this story about Jesus. We can sell all kinds of books. We can get all kinds of speaking gigs. And we're just going to rake in the the dollars or whatever. The denarii. (laughs) So is that why they did what they did? To get rich? I find it interesting right there in the same book that we read a moment ago. The book of Acts. Which tells that early history of the church of Jesus Christ after his resurrection. That on a different day, Peter and John, two of Jesus' apostles, are going back to the temple. And it's the hour of prayer, so they're going to worship and they're going to pray. And as they walk up to the gate of the temple, they see a beggar. And the beggar fixes his eyes on them. And he's hoping that they will give him some money. 
And Peter looks at this beggar, and the Bible says Peter fixed his eyes on the beggar. So now they're eyeball to eyeball. And Peter says this. He says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I freely give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter says, I don't have any money to give you. Now, maybe that was, maybe Peter was lying, you know, like you do at the gas station or anything. But there's nothing that would make us believe that Peter was lying. He's simply saying, I don't have anything. I've given up everything for the cause of Jesus Christ. And I've lost everything. Peter, at this moment, is living in a city that has rejected his Savior, has rejected him. He says, I don't have any money. He was poor. In fact, it was the half-brother of Jesus, James, who wrote in James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? By and large, the apostles of Jesus Christ were poor, worked for everything they had, lived on that prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And nothing in history points to any of them becoming wealthy. In fact, history points to the fact that they eventually lost everything, including their own lives. So that leaves one motivating factor. If it wasn't sex or money, it must have been power. And this is what you'll often hear people say. This is what J. Warner Wallace believed, that these apostles were motivated by power. They wanted power over people. They wanted power for a movement. They wanted political power or religious power. And so they created this myth. They created this lie in order to make themselves look better, to position themselves as authorities. It had to have been power. But whenever you look at history you'll discover that the first century Christians were not people of power. They were people on the margins of society. If they were, primarily they were Jews, they were then rejected by their own Jewish people because by and large the Jewish people did not believe Jesus was their coming Messiah. And because you're also Roman, you're condemned by your Roman government. Do you remember in, what was it, AD 64 that Rome burns to the... A huge portion of Rome, the city, burns to the ground. And people are blaming Emperor Nero because they think he just wants to have an excuse for a new building project. And so in order to shift the blame from himself, he has to find a scapegoat. And historians, secular historians say he found a good group. A very small, poor, politically powerless group called Christians. And he blamed them For starting the fire. Don't take my word for it. Listen to the words of senator and historian Tacitus. He was a first century Roman senator and historian of Rome. And in one of his dialogues, he wrote, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, he's talking about Christianity, a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment 
again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Talking about even the city of Rome. And I love that. What he's saying is this message of Jesus being the Son of God, crucified, buried, resurrected, didn't just stay in Jerusalem, didn't just stay in Israel. It's even reached the city of Rome, the capital of the empire. The good news of Jesus is being preached even there. And so he says, Accordingly, an arrest was made, first of all, who pleaded guilty. So they suspect you to be a Christian, they arrest you. If you say, yes, I am, good, we're going to torture you. So accordingly, an arrest was made of all people who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. And then he says, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. Or were nailed to crosses. Or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. That's what Nero did to Christians. He arrested them. He condemned them. He tortured them. He would cover them in the skins of animals and let wild dogs ravage them, tear them to bits and pieces. He would impale them on stakes, cover their bodies in pitch and light them on fire so that he would have a chariot way up to his palace at night. That is what Christians got for preaching the resurrection of Jesus. They did not get power. They got persecuted. And so you have to recognize that power is not a motivating factor here. Because if that's the motivating factor, it ain't working out so good. Even the Apostle Paul lost his lofty position of power as a Pharisee of the Jews when he converted to Christianity. Remember, at first, he's a persecutor of Christians. And then he meets the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it transformed his life. And he became a follower of Jesus. And he took his number among the persecuted believers. Paul said this about his own life in 2 Corinthians Chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. He said, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Forty lashes with a whip that would rip your flesh from your body was considered capital punishment. So legally they could only give him 39. He says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys... In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety For all the churches. Paul says, I've been beaten. I've been persecuted. I've been imprisoned. I've been destitute, cold, lonely, and hungry. My life has been on the line. That's what he got. And why? All he had to do was to to get all of that to stop, to get all of that to end, for things to go back to normal, was to say, I was wrong, I lied, I made it all up, I didn't see Jesus alive, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. 
He would have been then trotted out as a hero to all the enemies of Christ. See, we told you it was a lie. We got one of the, the apostles to recant. And here's something that secular historians all agree on. Not a single apostle of Jesus ever recanted their faith that Jesus rose from the dead. Under immense pressure, they never changed their story. They never caved. Think about how they died. The martyrdom traditions of the apostle says, Andrew was crucified in Patras, Greece. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was flayed to death with a whip in Armenia. James the Just was thrown from the temple and then beaten to death in Jerusalem. James the Greater was beheaded in Jerusalem. John the Apostle died in exile on the island of Patmos. Luke was hanged in Greece. Mark was dragged by a horse until he died in Alexandria, Egypt. Matthew was killed by a sword in Ethiopia. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded in Jerusalem. Peter was crucified upside down. Philip was crucified in Phrygia. Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear in India. And maybe you'll say, well, that's just church tradition that says how these people died. Yes, it's historical tradition as well, because not a, different, not a single different account of how these men died has ever been presented. This is how they died. Not in power, but losing everything. And not a single one of them ever recanted. Not a single one of them was ever trotted out in public saying, he's just admitted it's all a fabrication. It's a big conspiracy. It's all a hoax. They were willing to die with the testimony on their lips. Jesus died. He was buried. But God raised him from the dead physically. And we are eyewitnesses of this miracle. Nothing will change that. Now, maybe you'll say, well, pastor, come on. People die every day for things that aren't true. Think about the 9-11 terrorists. They, they flew planes into buildings saying that what they believed was true and they were willing to die even though it was evil and it was a lie. Yeah, but that's different. I'm not saying that people aren't willing to die for something they believe to be true. What I'm saying is no one dies for what they know to be a lie. And the first century apostles are in a different category from me or you dying for what we believe about Jesus. Christians have died throughout the centuries. Christians are dying all over the world right now for their faith in Jesus Christ. And all that does is it confirms they believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But they're basing their willingness to die on the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. The difference between us today and the apostles then is they were eyewitnesses. They knew whether or not what they were talking about was true or not. And if they had made it up, they would have caved under pressure. My brother-in-law, a police officer, a retired police officer, others in this room, they could tell you story after story how people were holding true to their story until they got them in a room and started questioning them. And then they had their other conspirator in a different room, and they said, now look, you need to come clean. Your buddy just said, you're the one that pulled the trigger. You're the one that did it. I did not. He did it. It was his idea. They all start caving, and they all start telling on each other to save their skin under immense pressure. 
Chuck Colson of the Watergate scandal said all of the Watergate conspirators had agreed on a single story. And if they would have stuck to their story, they could have probably gotten away with it. He said just a few weeks in, under intense scrutiny, the first one caved and the rest folded like cheap suits. And so when you think about the pressure the apostles of Jesus were under to the point of death, and then you realize they willingly died with the testimony of the resurrected Jesus on their lips, you will discover they were telling the truth. Paul E. Little, author of Know What You Believe, put it this way. He said, men will die for what they believe to be true, though it may actually be false. They do not, however, die for what they know is a lie. So this whole notion that the resurrection of Jesus is the Christian conspiracy foisted upon humanity is not true. Objections to the truthfulness of the apostles fail. Just because someone put it on a blog on the internet doesn't make it true. Just because somebody doesn't want to deal with the facts that are right before them and they would rather hold on to their outlandish conspiracies doesn't make the conspiracy true. There is no reasonable excuse to doubt the truthfulness of the apostles in regard to their testimony of Jesus, particularly when it comes to his resurrection. If you're going to argue that these men lied then you must make your case without any supporting evidence because all the evidence points to their truthfulness. The apostles shared truthful testimony about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they were willing to back up their testimony with their very lives. As a matter of fact, the preaching of Jesus' resurrection was not a conspiracy. It was a confession from eyewitnesses who were willing to die for that very confession. You must come to grips with that before you dismiss the resurrection of Jesus. If you're skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus, you're in good company. The first followers of Jesus were. You need to do your research. You need to investigate. But I believe the claims of Christianity stand up to historical, honest scrutiny. And I'm going to challenge you today, even if you don't yet believe that Jesus rose from the dead, at least you'll be able to check off your list, was it a conspiracy theory? Because there is no reasonable evidence to support these people lied. They believed what they saw was true. You say, well, it was a hallucination to over 500 people. That's not how hallucinations work. Consistent in their testimony. That's not how he'll lose it. Well, he swooned on the cross but didn't really die. No modern historian, secular or Christian, believes the swoon theory anymore. It is a well-attested fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and he died on that cross. Romans didn't let you off the cross. They were good at killing people. He died. Someone has come up now with this new theory. Oh, Jesus had a twin. And after Jesus died and he was buried, then his twin showed up and said, no, the movement can continue. I'm Jesus. And all the disciples fell for it. Come on, really? 
So you're going to really believe that. By the way, if that were true, why didn't the Jews and the Romans who were guarding the body of Jesus say, no, here's his body right here. Even the Jews and the Romans admitted the tomb was empty. So what I'm saying is, people can come up with all kinds of conspiracies and excuses, but the plainest, most reasonable understanding of the evidence, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose from the dead, and he was seen by people who gave their lives for that testimony. And if you're a Christian today, you need to be ready to defend your faith. You've got good answers. So when someone says this all a lie, you need to be able to help them understand. Well, let's talk about there are three motivating factors for lies and conspiracies. Sex, money, and power. The apostles didn't have any of those. In fact, what did they get if they didn't get sex, money, or power? They got persecuted. They got tormented. They got tortured. They got killed. That's what they got. So why would they die for a lie? That they all made up. No, the Christian message is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6, and we're gonna close with this. The Apostle Paul, himself, first a skeptic, who then saw Jesus alive on the road to Damascus, he would write in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Gospel means good news. Of the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter, the apostle Peter. And then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus not only appeared to the twelve. But he also appeared to upwards of 500 people. Some of them have died but the, most, the majority of them are still alive. It's Paul's way of saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them. Hundreds of people are willing to die for the fact they have physically seen Jesus alive. And Paul would later write, and he appeared to me. The last person he should have ever appeared to was me because I persecuted the church. But he appeared to me too. And it changed his life. If you ever hear someone say, it's the Christian conspiracy, now you'll be able to say, no. The preaching of the good news of the resurrection of Jesus is not a conspiracy. It is a confession from eyewitnesses who are willing to give their lives for this good news. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, I thank you.